Exodus 12, 29-51, I'm reading in the English Standard Version. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, for the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, The Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. May the Lord bless his reading of the word and Greg as he preaches this morning. Good morning. We are continuing our sermon series in the book of Exodus, and we've been learning about the God who saves. Um, So throughout Exodus, God has promised again and again that he would deliver his people from slavery. And God has told Pharaoh that God would judge Egypt if Pharaoh didn't let Israel go. Uh, So today's passage is the first major culmination of those promises. The final plague um, pushes Pharaoh to let them go. God's people are delivered out of Egypt. And as they leave, the Egyptians are giving them wealth and riches. And we need to understand the backdrop of what's going on here. So I was discussing this passage with a good friend of mine, and he reminded me, this is the most frightening 
of all the plagues. Not just for the Egyptians, but for the Israelites. So to this point, every plague has been nature unleashed, right? Frogs and boils and hail, um, nature unleashed. But this plague, the death of the firstborn, is God unleashed. And so you have to imagine the Israelites were probably filled with fear uh, and doubt. And they were wondering, is this really going to happen? Like, is the blood of the lamb really going to work? Are we going to make it through the night? And as the spirit of death went through Egypt, um, and there was a great cry in the land, the Israelites quite likely were feeling a terror that they had never felt before. So, how did people, Hebrew, Egyptian, whomever, how did they respond? How did they respond to God revealing his power and revealing his wonders? That's what I want us to focus on today. And to make it personal... How will you respond when God reveals himself? When God reveals his wonders, how will you respond? So as we look at the story, we're going to see three things. Pharaoh's response, the response of the mixed multitude, and the response of those to come. So the response of Pharaoh, the response of the mixed multitude, and the response of those to come. So let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would... um, Open our hearts, soften our hearts, um, that we would um, perceive you, that you would reveal yourself to us, and that we would um, respond um, in accordance to your purpose and will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so first, Pharaoh's response. So remember, for several chapters, God told Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to judge you. Okay? God sent plague after plague after plague, right? Ten plagues. And from the start, God said, Israel is my firstborn son, and if you do not let my firstborn go, I will strike down your firstborn. So Pharaoh's been warned. God told Pharaoh exactly what would happen. His firstborn son would die. And so now on the tenth plague, right, he's already given him nine. God strikes down his son. And Pharaoh responds by saying, go, out. So you might think Pharaoh finally got the point, right? Um, But not quite. Because did you notice what else Pharaoh said? So let me read for you. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. Right? Bless me also. This is not exactly a response of repentance, Right? Pharaoh is still every bit as egomaniacal, self-centered, and delusional as he's been from the start. The circumstances have kind of changed for the moment, um, but his relationship with God has not. His response to God is only superficially different this time. He still demands that Israel and the Lord serve him. Right? Bless me also. Because of Pharaoh's choices... Every house in Egypt has experienced death. And yet, Pharaoh demands a blessing for himself. Now, on the one hand, I think Pharaoh's response is pretty hilarious. Right? So it's like, okay, okay, you killed my son, but I know now you've got a blessing for me. Right? Right? Or maybe maybe he's he's a little bit like, okay, I messed up. No harm, no foul. Hashtag blessed. 
Right? So it's fun to make fun of Pharaoh. On the other hand, you know, when we're being serious, which I do sometimes, um, I think Pharaoh's response is surprising. No? Right? I mean, he's just seen God display his power again and again and again, just as God said he would. How could Pharaoh not relent? How could he not relent? How could he still say, and bless me also? Pharaoh's heart is hard. How you respond to meeting God doesn't depend on how clearly God's power is displayed. Okay? It doesn't depend on whether you've seen ten plagues or one plague or none. It doesn't depend on whether you've heard God's voice audibly coming out of fire or in a still small whisper or in the pages of a book. It depends on the state of your heart. And we see this throughout the Bible. So let me give you some examples. So one way that God reveals himself is through his word, through the scriptures. And, you know, the Pharisees knew the scriptures extremely well, way better than you or I do. Um, But they missed finding God in the scriptures. Another way God reveals himself is through the person of Jesus. You look at Jesus, you see how he lived his life, and you see God. And they had Jesus right in front of them, and the Pharisees missed God. God reveals himself through signs and wonders, right, like we see here in in Egypt. Um, And Jesus does miracles. He raises people from the dead, and the Pharisees' response is, we need to kill this guy. So they had incredible revelation of God. But they rejected him, right? Or um, James tells us that there are created beings who know all about God. They know everything about how he created all things. They know about his power. They even shudder at the thought of his awesomeness and power, which I think is more than a lot of us can say. Um, But the demons don't worship God, right? They hate him. Their problem isn't knowledge or evidence. And I think most of us, you know, we think, you know, all that anybody needs is enough evidence for God and they turn and worship. You know, and maybe you, right? Maybe you're sitting here and you have doubts, right? You feel spiritually dry. You're struggling in your faith and you're thinking, you know, if I really experienced God, that would be enough. I wouldn't feel this way. If God really showed himself, I wouldn't struggle. I wouldn't have doubts. That's wrong. And this creates at least two problems for us. So first, I mean, like directly, we think our problem is that we haven't experienced enough. So for ourselves or for others, we think what we need is more evidence or we need more experience. right? We don't have enough yet. Um, We see a problem, right? Spiritual dryness is a real thing, um, but we get the diagnosis and the treatment wrong. Um, second, this makes it very difficult for us to accept the doctrine of hell or judgment. I know you didn't see that one coming. Um, so let me explain what I mean. So some of us have this cartoon picture in our head of this is how, this is how hell works. This is how judgment works. So there are people who didn't believe in God, um, and then they die. And then at the final day, um, God reveals himself and declares that they're going to hell. 
And they protest, no, please, we didn't know, we'll worship you now. Um, but an angry God says, too bad, it's too late for you. And the picture we have is people pleading, please, no, no, no. And God's saying, no, I'm ignoring you. Um, that's, the, that's the picture, right? Um, so, um, is that the biblical picture? You probably can see where that's going, right? Um, is that how the Bible describes judgment? Well, no. Okay, so for some, right, look at Pharaoh, right? He's received tremendous judgment, and he still says, bless me. Okay? And in two chapters, Pharaoh's going to change his mind, gather his chariots, and go after Israel to get them back. He's not relented. He's not turned his mind to God. Not at all. Everywhere in the Bible talks about how people respond to final judgment. We get the same picture. So go to Revelation, the Revelation, right? The apocalypse, the Armageddon, the end, you know, whatever you want, like the totality of judgment, right? This is where the complete revelation of God's wrath poured out against wickedness and evil. How does Revelation say people respond? Revelation chapter 9, this is what it says. They did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. While they are experiencing God's wrath because they worship demons, they don't stop doing it. Now you might say, God, really? That's if you want to reject a doctrine of hell that is non-biblical, by all means. But this is the biblical picture. You might think, how could this possibly be? I mean, surely they would change. Thank you. The, you know, the Bible's saying, if you want to worship demons and commit murders and sorceries and whatever it is, God's judgment isn't going to change that. You know, it might be confusing, but it's at least it's not the picture of people crying, no, I've changed my mind, please stop. Okay? Or here's another example. Jesus tells a parable of a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. Okay? And um, so during his life, the rich man ignored Lazarus, even as he's lying in complete and utter agony at his doorstep. And they die in the parable. And the, the, the rich man goes down to hell. And the poor man goes up to heaven. And he's in the bosom of Abraham. Father Abraham is, is holding him. So, how does Jesus say the rich man responds in the parable? So he tells Abraham, he says, send Lazarus to me to give me some water. Okay? He's in hell. He doesn't say, can I get out of here, please? It's hot. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, I wish I knew. He says, okay, I'll stay here, but the heat is killing me. Send Lazarus to me. He can bring me some water. Right? He's still... He sees Lazarus as an object that's beneath him. Doesn't matter. He's the one that's up, like cuddling with Abraham right now, right? But he's like, no, no, no. I can boss him around. Send him to me. He's still delusional. He's still, you know, he's still nuts. And so then later, the rich man asks Abraham, he says, hey, send Lazarus back from the dead to warn my family. Then, then they'll know, right? And do you know what Abraham says? Jesus says, He's telling the parable. They have Moses and the prophets to warn them. If they won't listen to God's word in the Bible, they won't listen if somebody comes back from the dead. 
So Pharaoh says, go and bless me also. How will you respond when God reveals himself? Because I think a lot of us, we've seen God work in our lives. We have evidence of God being at work. And we know that God is calling us to do something. We need to give something up. We need to apologize. We need to forgive somebody. Maybe 70 times 7. It's not easy. We need to take responsibility for something in our lives. We need to make a change. We sense God's conviction. And we're not going to do it. Right? How often do we put on the brakes instead of obeying? Right? Or maybe actually, you know, Pharaoh puts on the brakes and what does he do? He gets his chariots and he charges forward to get his slaves back. You know, maybe for us putting on the brakes is getting our chariots and charging headlong back into sin. That's what Pharaoh did. Don't do that. Okay. So Pharaoh's response. Second, the mixed multitude. So verse 38 says that as Israel left, a mixed multitude also went with them. Okay, so non-Hebrews living in Egypt also go out. So very briefly, let's consider why this is significant. So first, remember, Egypt is a corrupt, idolatrous society. God has set the Israelites free from slavery, and God is setting free others who want out of Egypt. Egypt is thoroughly unjust, right? They're led by an evil king. Its society is organized around idol worship. Its economy is built on exploitative labor practices like slavery. Um, Israel obviously was suffering tremendously under Egypt, right? So they were enslaved, they were beaten, their babies were killed. In a society like that, do you think Israel was the only one? When the whole society is thoroughly corrupt, that affects everybody. It affects God's people and it affects everybody else living there. Through these ten plagues, God has been uncreating Egypt. So I won't go into it. I don't fully understand. But there's all these um, narrative parallels between how the Exodus talks about the plagues, God speaking, and Genesis 1, where God speaks and God creates. So God has, through these plagues, in effect, been creating in reverse. Okay? He's deconstructing the Egyptian society. And he's bringing it back into chaos and nothingness. When God brings judgment on an idolatrous, unjust society, that's good news for everybody affected. I mean, it's not good news for Pharaoh, okay? But a mixed multitude are set free. So, friends, do you recognize that God's salvation is good news for everyone who receives it and for everybody who's around to benefit from it? Now, yes, it's not good news if you're in rebellion against the king, and the kingdom of God is coming near, right? Um, you don't want the king to return in that case. So, for example, Disney's Robin Hood. Robin Hood's the fox, right? What's the hope that Robin Hood holds out for the people? It's not that Robin Hood is going to claim the throne and he'll be in charge. It's that one day the good King Richard would come back, and he would establish justice in the land, 
The hope was for the good king to return, the true king. And when King Richard returns, it's bad news for Prince John. It's bad news for all his goonies. But for everybody else, King Richard overturns evil and injustice, and he establishes peace, and everybody benefits. Not just Robin Hood. When God's people live how God tells us to, when we obey God and we follow his rules, we create a more just society. We create communities that flourish. We become a generous family. We care for those in need. We fight to fix problems in society. That's what God tells us to do. God's people, living as God commands, embody the kingdom of God. So we're the hands and feet of Jesus, and that's good news for our neighbors. So, CBC, we ought to be such a beautiful community that blesses others that even if our neighbors think that we believe crazy things, they should be glad we're here. Right? We ought to embody the kingdom so well that even if they find what we believe offensive, and they will, they're glad we're here. So, first, God's salvation is good news for the mixed multitude. But second, consider, they're leaving with the Israelites. Right? Pharaoh told the Israelites to leave, and the mixed multitude say, we're coming with you. Right? So, you know, it might be obvious that they would do that, right? Given what we've just said, this is a ticket out of Egypt, out of injustice, out of evil. Um, but it's not at all obvious that they would think, and we're going where you're going. Right? So why would they do that? Well, they know that God is with Israel. And they want to be part of that. Right? They aren't just turning away from oppression. They're doing that. They're turning toward God. And that brings us to our final point. So, finally, the response of those to come. So the last part of the passage is about if a foreigner wants to eat the Passover. Right? The Passover, Chris told us last week, was the defining event in the life of Israel. Right? God told Israel, prepare a lamb, cover the doorframe with its blood, and when I see the blood, I will spare you. Right? When God sent the tenth plague the death of the firstborn, God would see the blood on the doorframes of the Hebrew households and he would pass them over. Right? You will live if you take shelter under the blood. It was a terrifying night. Right? Israelites surely had doubts if they'd make it through. And so, you know, they had to step out in faith and do what they were told. Um, they had to trust God's promise to pass over. And God did. So this was a turning point in their lives. And so Israel would commemorate the Passover meal every year to remember how God saved them from judgment and set them free. Right? It was the meal that made them a free nation, and it testified to God's salvation. And it was the meal that continued to define the family of God. So the text says two things that seem to be opposed. So first it says, no foreigner will keep the Passover. Um, but second, it says, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. 
You know, and this is one of those examples, if you don't think very hard, it seems like Scripture is contradicting itself, you know, like basically back-to-back verses, right? So, like, can a foreigner take the Passover or not? Which is it? So, remember, Israel is not just a family that shares ethnic heritage. Israel is a covenant community. So, Israel's primary identity is that they belong to the God who has promised to love them. Right, so a covenant is a relationship based on a promise. Right, so it's more binding than a mere personal relationship, but it's more intimate than a mere legal relationship. It's a relationship with a promise. Um, so the closest human equivalent is marriage, which is not a coincidence because that's how God designed it. Um, and marriage is a declaration that you will love your spouse. Right, the vows are for better or for worse, right? Promising, I will love you for better, is not a promise. That's obvious, right? Saying, I will promise you even when, I, even when it's worse, even when I don't want to. Right? That's the whole point. Promises bind when we're tempted to not keep them. And the thing about marriage, the way the Bible talks about it, is that the love you have doesn't sustain the promise. The promise sustains the love. That's covenant. The promise sustains the love. That's why we make promises. So throughout history, God made covenants with his people, promising to be their God, promising to bless them, promising to forgive their sins, And so Israel was a covenant family. And if you entered into that family, you entered into the covenant. You entered into the promises. And there were terms of the agreement. So in a few chapters, God's going to give the Ten Commandments, which are the covenant terms now that they've been set free. This is what you do now that you're part of God's promised people. When God appeared to Abraham, the covenant sign God gave was circumcision. Circumcision was the mark that you were in God's family. And the way society was organized then, if the males were circumcised, it meant the whole, fam- the whole household was in the family. Okay? So, back to our passage. If a foreigner says, I'm going to join your family, then they could participate in the covenant meal. Once they joined the family, the Passover meal was theirs. Now, but I, you know, I want you to think, why would a foreigner want to celebrate the Passover? Right? Because, and here's why. Because the Passover is not just remembering what God had done in the past for Israel. It was certainly that, but it wasn't just that. Because if it was just remembering something that happened, if it wasn't your story, then celebrating it would be like going to somebody else's high school reunion. Okay, right. People will be telling stories of how, you know, the football team won in the final seconds when Joe Schmo threw the touchdown pass. And, um, and you'd be thinking, great, it sounds like you had fun, but it wouldn't be doing anything for you because you weren't there. Remembering is significant if it also affects the present, if it affects the future. So, you know, like somebody who remembers the glory days of high school because that's the best that it's ever going to be for them. They don't have anything to look forward to. Joe Schmo throwing the touchdown pass is the best it's ever going to be. 
It's kind of like um, Uncle Rico in uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Even with my students who are not that much younger than me, they don't get any of my cultural references anymore. But what if what was achieved fundamentally changed the present and the future, right? Then remembering the past means something quite different, right? So like, okay, you won the game, and then all these things happened, and the school became great, and the town became great. The town was on the map, and all of a sudden, everything changed for that town. And everybody knows it came back to when they won that game. And so now, that's a different type of remembering. It's kind of like, how many of you were at um, 1776, Declaration of Independence? Right? Fourth of July. Why do we celebrate that? Not just because something happened, right? But because that epitomizes what this country is supposed to stand for. And that's why a lot of immigrants come, they get their citizenship, and they love the Fourth of July. They weren't there. Right? I mean, almost none of us, we weren't there. But it's a story worth remembering. I, I don't, you know, I want to I hold space for uncertainty. Yeah. <laughs> Economists sometimes, you know, make predictions that are just ridiculous. Um, right? Like, we celebrate the past because we say, this is something I want to be part of in the present. Okay? The Passover remembered the past in order to remember God's present work and his promises for the future. And so that's why this statute was given for future generations. In the years to come, after the Exodus, God knew there would be foreigners who were not saved through the Exodus, but they would want to participate. They weren't there, but they wanted it to be their story. Because the Exodus and the Passover meant that God is at work in Israel. Not just was, but is. And so this defined God's family. They belong to a God who, present tense, ends injustice. Who sets the prisoners free. Who defeats oppressive rulers. Who destroys the power of idolatry. Who creates a community in which God is present. A community that God saves. A foreigner who recognizes that God is at work in Israel would want to join that family. They would want the Exodus to be their story because they want to be part of the community that God is actively saving, actively shaping, and actively caring for. And every Israelite who celebrated the Passover declared, God saved us and God continues to save us. Right? We live because of God's promise to deliver us out of Egypt. And we continue to live by God's promises. And there was also a degree of mystery to this. Because as time went on, um, Israel came to understand that the Exodus pointed to an even greater salvation. The prophets would say this. So, for example, Jeremiah said, A day would come when people would no longer say, As the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But they would praise God for a greater salvation that was to come. Celebrating the Passover looked backward, but it also looked forward in hope. 
It looks forward to a greater exodus, a greater Passover. And so we know that the Passover points to the ultimate Passover at the cross, where God's judgment came down and his wrath passed over any who would take shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Right? Jesus is our Passover Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And we're saved from ultimate judgment because of the blood. The Israelites observing the Passover, whether they knew it or not, and they probably didn't, were declaring that God's past deliverance pointed to the ultimate one to come. So celebrating the Passover meal was mysteriously putting their hope in the God who would deliver at the cross. Right? Putting their hope in a God who would pass over again. You know, and we too, we look back to our great salvation at the cross and also see that it points forward to our final salvation. So God forgave us, past tense. God set us free, past tense. And his spirit is at work in us, sanctifying us. And one day we will be made perfect. So our Passover meal is communion, right? Where Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Right? And we celebrate communion to remember that Christ died for us to set us free. And we celebrate communion as a declaration that Christ will return. I think we can often miss that. But, so in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right? We proclaim his death until he comes. You know, you say, we proclaim his death because he will come again. We look back to the cross, we look to the present work of the Holy Spirit, and we look forward to the day that Jesus returns. And all it takes to become a member of God's family is to belong to Jesus. And today, our sign that you're in God's family is that you're baptized. Now, I know some of you don't like the idea of publicly getting dipped, but consider the alternative. You could get circumcised. If your story is that God saved you at the cross and you trust in Jesus to return, then you join God's family. That's what it means. And baptism is a marker of God's promise. It's, it's not primarily about you. It's about God. Now, trusting in God's promises can be difficult. It can be scary, right? Trusting God re requires replacing old, unhealthy ways of thinking with new, healthy ways of doing it. Um, requires doing things God's ways, not your own way. And so if you've, if you've spent all your life doing things your way, right, that can, uh, that can be a hard shift. Um, you know, now, some of you are thinking... I'm not ready for that to be my story yet. I need more evidence. I need more of an experience. I need more signs and wonders. If God can answer all my questions or if God can really show himself to me, you know, if God does some great salvation for me, then dot, dot, dot. But God has already given you everything you need. Okay? Look at what Jesus has already done for you. Okay? He lived a perfect life that declares the goodness of hol and holiness of God. He died a sacrificial death out of love for you. 
And he rose to indestructible life to defeat death. And if you put your trust in him, you will defeat death too. If you know that God has done these things, there is nothing more that God could show you to reveal more of himself and more of his love. In Jesus, God has completely revealed himself. He's revealed his power, his holiness. He's revealed his love and his mercy and his compassion. There's nowhere else that you need to look. Right? What more could God do to show you his love than to leave heaven and come to earth and give himself for you? You know, if you say, yeah, I don't feel it. Okay, but seriously, on your own, you're never going to feel it. But the good news is that God's judgment poured out on the cross is not the same as God's judgment poured out on Egypt. Right? Pharaoh could look at God's judgment and he could still say, and bless me also. Right? Pharaoh could look at the death of his firstborn and still resist God. You know, God knows that we need a new heart if we're going to respond to God's revelation with gratitude and joy. God knows we need our hearts changed. And that's why, throughout scriptures, God promised to give us an ultimate Savior and a new heart. Because Jesus died and rose again, God sends his Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we can receive him. Our salvation is a gift. Our faith is is a gift. If you look at the cross and you say, this is my salvation, that's God's gift to you. If you look to Jesus and you say, I have no hope apart from you, that's God's gift to you. And if you don't feel like you're there yet, but you want to be, this is actually the first sign that God is at work. Right? If you feel in yourself a desire for God, that's God's gift. If you feel in yourself a desire to have more of God, right? If you want to experience God enough that you would turn to him and accept him, that's God at work. Keep seeking him. Keep asking him for more. Don't be a fool like Pharaoh and demand first that God bless you. But in humility, cry out. My only hope is that I have a savior. My only hope is to be part of a family that lives by God's promise. My only hope is that God is a God who saves. God was willing to give himself on the cross so that he could forgive you and make you part of his family. He will not leave you or forsake you now if you're crying out for more of him. If you ask for more faith, if you ask for more belief, God will give it to you. Do that today. Let's pray. God, we thank you that when we are in a desert, that we can sing praise, that we can hold fast to the promises that we have. We can hold fast to the truth of what you've already done and to the truth of what you are doing and what you will do. Jesus, we thank you that you are the perfect revelation of our Heavenly Father, utterly holy and utterly loving. We thank you that you know us and you do not reject us that you gave yourself to forgive us and to make us pure. God, I pray that whatever we have stirring in our hearts, God, 
God, if you, are, if you are tugging at us, Lord, I pray that we would go in the direction you are calling us. Lord, give more power um, to your tug and to our, to our willingness to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.